Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and I am really happy to be in the studio on this beautiful October the 18th to talk with Willie Dalton from Duffield, Virginia, where she currently lives, who has written a book. I think this is your first novel, right? It is. Three Witches in a Small Town. And it was the winner of the Jan Carroll Publishing Believe and Achieve Award. Willie grew up in the tiny town of Pound, Virginia, not too far from good old Whitesburg. And even from a small age, she was drawn to things ignored by most other kids. Her favorite pastime was pretending to be a fairy or a gypsy fortune teller draped in scarves, using an old globe from a light fixture as her crystal ball. She has always loved folklore and found many truths in home remedies. Early on, this led her to pursue a degree and a lifetime study of herbs and natural healing. In her occupational endeavors, she's taught yoga, been a certified massage therapist, helped run her family's health food store, and been a natural health consultant. For the last couple of years, writing has taken hold of her heart, and now she's most pleased to add author to the list. You can follow Willie on her blog. That is www.threewitchesinasmalltown.wordpress.com or you can find her on Facebook at Facebook backslash three witches in a small town. I feel like we have a pretty similar background, you and I. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we've dabbled in a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And for me, it always comes back to writing. I agree. Um, writing is something that I've done like I said, you know, since I was really, really young. And I've, I've always done it. I've got notebooks full of stories, most never finished. But no matter what else I did, I always came back to writing. But I never, for some reason, I never saw it as the thing I should be focusing on. I wonder why that is, but then again, I don't. Because I know here in Appalachia, a lot of things that are considered artistic aren't considered jobs or something that you would aspire to make a job out of. I wonder if that's because most of our artistic expression comes in artisanal things Mm -hmm. like things that have a practical use and writing for folks who have lived so hands-on for so many years it's more academic I think not seen as anything completely necessary it's not seen as completely necessary it's funny because we have so many people in our older generation who are such fantastic storytellers and we need the writers to write their stories down or write about the way they grew up. Easily overlooked. I feel really fortunate my great-grandmother was an English teacher. And she was my babysitter up until the time I was about 10. <laughs> so <laughs> she taught me grammar and instilled that into me whether I wanted to learn it or not. <laughs> and made sure that I knew ain't what in a word, mm-hmm. even though I refused to not use it. <laughs> I had to at least acknowledge it's not a word, but it is now, yeah. I want to say. So when did you start writing regularly? Well, all through my teenage years, I wrote pretty much every night. And then once I started studying natural health and 
pursuing more classes and my schedule got a little more full, uh, I didn't write nearly as often. And something in the last probably three years now kept nudging me to write. Uh, I kept having more ideas for stories and would try to find the time to sit down and write. Just never really could bring myself to take it totally seriously. When I thought about getting published, I would researched a little online and everything I pulled up seemed terrifying. <laughs> but whenever my daughter came and asked me, she just, you know, wandered through the house one day and she said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I could easily remember never, ever having an answer to that question before. And it just came out. I said, I want to be a writer. The only thing I could think of was, you know, I want to see one of my books on a bookstore shelf. That would be the ultimate for me. And that's when I started taking it really seriously. Is this your very first publication or have you published smaller things before? This or? was my very first publication. Um, once I decided I was going to take it seriously, uh, I told my husband and I told my mom and I thought, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to try to get it published. And it was only a few days later my mom handed me a magazine that had the um, Believe and Achieve contest. And she said, if you're going to write, you should submit to this. I had a very short time frame for how much time I had to write the book. And I somehow managed to get it done. It was, oh my goodness, that's a story in itself about the day that I submitted it. But I got it in, and I couldn't believe a few months later when, when I won. Wow. Right out of the gate, that's a really big achievement. For so many writers, it takes a lot of smaller publications to build up to being able to have a novel published. And the landscape for publishing is changing so dramatically. So while we can, in some ways, find it easier to see our book on a bookstore bookshelf, getting there, there's so many people doing it, getting mm -hmm. there and actually making a living from it, I think might be growing a little harder because there's so much free things online to read and ways of getting material to read. It's great for the people who really want to share their work and get it out there. I think it's fantastic, but I feel like it, in a way it's wonderful, and in another way I feel like it kind of muddies the water for people who take it really, really seriously. Not to say that you're not serious if you self-publish. I think there's some brilliant books that are self-published. It just, it's harder to find what you're looking for in a way. And so, well, tell me about the day that you submitted this novel. <laughs> what is that like for a writer? Well, I was, I had two and a half months start to finish to write the book and edit it to get it submitted. Um, so I wrote every single day. I had a word count that I had to get in. And I finished the last sentence a week before it was supposed to be submitted. That left me with a week to edit it. So I was working on it every day. Um, my mom got really sick and ended up being admitted to the hospital in Johnson City. So I was driving back and forth and I was supposed to go pick her up from the hospital the day it was supposed to be submitted. And I was staying at her house in Pound and then my computer was in Duffield. And so I'm running around trying to get the last finishing touches on the manuscript and I have to call to submit, you know, the fee, the reading fee. And I call and the office is closed. And I'm freaking out. <laughs> so I look at the address. I'm like, okay, well, their office is in Johnson City. So I will write a check and take it by and drop it off. So I open my checkbook and I have no checks. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. 
I will stop by the bank and get them to print me out a check. So I go by the bank and for whatever reason, their machine is down. So I turn around and of course, you know, have to add to, you know, the effect of it. It was seriously like pouring the rain and I have my daughter with me. So, you know, it's very crazy. And I go back to the other bank and they print me some up. And I'm just getting to Johnson City whenever I get a phone call. And it's the lady who runs the company. And she's like, oh, I just came into the office and got your message. So I can take your payment over the phone. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I made the payment. She said, for whatever reason, she said, we've had a lot of people call and say they just found the contest and that they want to enter. So we're actually extending the deadline by three months. <laughs> so at that point, I was kind of done. I was like... Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I'm going to win. I had, you know, I could have had three extra months. I had no idea. Everything was already done and submitted. So I just kind of pushed it to the back of my mind, which made it even more exciting when I got the call. But yeah, and it makes for, you know, a nice story to tell because it was just crazy. Yeah, it's one of those pull your hair out days. Yeah, it was the universe going, how bad do you really want to do this? Right. right. <laughs> Let's test your patience yeah. and yeah, see how bad you want it. I think sometimes those situations are really the teller of what we truly want for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. If we can get through those sorts of situations as hard as they are, <laughs> with a few choice words, I'm sure, and a, oh, yeah. and a little bit of anger and frustration, but you won. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the book and, and some of the content of the book in just a minute, mm -hmm. but seeing that you're a mom and I am myself and you talked about getting in a certain word count every day as you were writing the book and a week to edit <laughs> and I have three daughters so when I am writing I can't stay up late for right. various reasons because it doesn't matter what time we go to bed we're always up before daylight and <laughs> so I'm writing with them with me Mm -hmm. You know, so it's write a little bit, like a paragraph, break for something, write a little bit more, you know, or be writing with mommy, 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 mommy right. in the background. <laughs> so is that kind of a similar situation? I have a really hard time writing with any kind of distraction, which really limits how much I can work. So I usually, when I know I have something I have to get done, I never considered myself a morning person until the last couple of years, but I made myself get up an hour before anybody else in the house would get up and would try to get some of my writing done. And I mean, some, you know, as a writer too, I mean, sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you dig for those words, they're just not there. So I would write in the morning and then sometimes I would write in the evening. I would, you know, my daughter, she's so attached. She wants me by her side all the time. I'm like, okay, look, I have to do this. You can see it, you can put your headphones on, play on your tablet, watch something quietly, but this is what I have to do. You can't interrupt me until I say okay. And most of the time, she'll go along with me pretty well. But for the most part, most of my writing is done about 5 to 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we just celebrated, I guess it was a month or so ago, the birthday of Harriet Simpson Arnault, who wrote The Dollmaker. Mm-hmm. And so we aired an interview that Herbie Smith had done with her. I think it was back in the 70s, mid-70s. And she said that that's what she did when she 
was a mom, and that's how she wrote the doll maker. Wow. Was getting up because she knew she had this period when, because she, she also had a colicky baby, oh, so the baby would fall asleep, and then she had this period where he crashed out for like a couple of hours, and then he would wake up again. So, she was talking like three thirty a.m. <laughs> so from three thirty a.m. to five, she would write. Then she would get her husband off to work and the kids off to school, and then sometimes she would write some more. I'm like, that, that is dedication. I have great admiration for people like that because there is, I mean, an hour of sleep is really all I can sacrifice or nobody wants to be anywhere near me. Mm, that's, <laughs> that's the same with me, yeah. yeah. Or And if I don't have enough sleep, I can't run. No, me either. Yeah, it's like a brain fog or something. Yeah, I just, I can't. I can't function on little sleep. And I had a colicky baby, so, whew. I can't imagine trying to do anything besides survive with that going on. <laughs> yeah. When I heard her process, my admiration just grew even more to write a book as beautiful as The Dollmaker. Absolutely. In that situation, to me, just shows a tremendous dedication to your craft. It is. I think, though, if you really have a book in you and you're desperate to get out, you, you will find the time and find the way mm-hmm. at some point. So, that makes me want to ask. I know I do a lot of writing in my head. So, I'll have whole pieces written in my head before I ever type the first word. Is this a story that you had been sitting with for a while, or was it made on spot? I have a lot of stories that I take notes on, all different things. But Three Witches in a Small Town was just totally word by word. I had really no idea whenever I sat down and said, I'm going to write a book for this contest. I had no idea what I was going to write. I had had a dream probably a year, several years before I ever wrote the book about three sisters walking through this small town. And they were very obviously kind of witches, you know, the dark clothes, you know, just something about them said witch. And everyone in the town was just staring at them as they walked by. The feel of the dream had always really stuck with me. And I knew I wanted to do something closely related to Appalachia and kind of honor my family and pour a lot of pieces of myself into it. And I found a way to kind of weave those together as I wrote. I really had no full idea of where it was going until until I finished it. Well, that's a tremendous feat. And there's a lot of pieces to this story. You think about supporting characters, but you definitely build out quite a number of characters in this piece. By the end, you feel like you're with a gang of friends. Right. You know, you know everybody. Yeah. Which is nice. I like to write stories that I would like to pick up and read. And it took me forever after I got the first published copy of the book to actually pick it up. It made me extremely nervous once I got it because I was terrified of looking through and seeing something, you know, that I wouldn't like. But especially at signings, when I'm not doing anything, I'll sit and pick up a copy and just flip over a few pages, and it it always makes me smile. I'm like, okay, well, I wrote a book that makes me smile. It may not be completely perfect, but, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with that. Yeah, nothing's completely perfect, and I don't think any artist is ever satisfied (laughs) with what they've done. (laughs) I know you can edit something into the ground. It's hard for me to describe what kind of book this is because it's definitely very Appalachian. Mm -hmm. I think most people from here would feel really at home in this book. It would bring back memories for them for sure. 
but it's also what I think I would call genre fiction. Mm -hmm. While it's not the Wickedy Witch story, right. you know, and people casting incantations <laughs> and, and things like that, as you may think from the title, it is very deeply a witch story. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> How do you describe the book? What genre is it for you? That's one thing I, I've even had trouble classifying it as whenever I've submitted it, you know, or for different things. You know, everyone wants to know what genre it is. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I generally just classify it as a family story. There's, of course, some romance. And definitely a lot of magical, witchy elements, which is what I wanted. But it's not so far out into you know, new agey, um, or what they would consider, you know, like the magical fantasy. So it, it's really hard to classify. Yeah, it's definitely not a fantasy story. No. And I want to talk about that a little bit, because you talk about how it's not so far out into this new age realm, because mm -hmm. there are people who call themselves witches and who are. Right. There are faiths. I know the Wiccan faith mm -hmm. is one who some of their practitioners refer to themselves as witches. And a lot of people consider that, even though it's been around forever. Right. They consider it New Age. I guess it's the New Age of bringing up old things, maybe. <laughs> but for us here in Appalachia, I think... I know it was for me. And reading this book makes me feel like it definitely was for you. And there have been things, I don't know if you're familiar with Anna West, mm -hmm. but uh, she has a blog online and I see a lot of young women just sharing her work all She's over amazing. the place. She's amazing. She is. And, and she has a similar type of, mm -hmm. I'd put her in the same class of writing. And I think it's because it's distinctly Appalachian. Yes. But... We grew up this way. Mm -hmm. We grew up believing that a dream could mean something. That, for example, a bird flying into a window, you needed to wait <laughs> <laughs> for something to happen. And, right. and for us, it meant a death. Mm -hmm. Or a bird flying in the house Yeah, was the same thing. Walking out into the backyard to pick an herb or something to put on a wound was commonplace. Yep. I was raised to believe in spirits mm -hmm. and not to be afraid to have wonderment. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I do, I tell people these things and they kind of look at me like, and what was your family? I'm like, <laughs> oh, they were Christian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <You know>? Exactly. <laughs> so, how do you explain, like, Anna West calls it granny witches. Mm -hmm. And someone last night asked me, what is a granny witch? So how would you explain that to someone? It's usually like a very wise, generally in our area, very wise older woman who's kind of, you know, helped raise the family. And I think a lot of it is just being so in tune with your surroundings and the energies around you. I mean, I know there's still a lot of people who don't believe in, you know, auras or energy or however, but for the most part, most people realize there's something else going on that you can't quite put your finger on such an old feeling especially here in the mountains feel it there is a different energy and I think some people can are just more sensitive can tap into it better whenever I was writing the book you know I used a lot of things that I already knew 
I was on a time crunch, so I didn't want to have to do a lot of other extensive research, but I picked up a couple of other books about folk magic, especially in the Appalachian Mountains. You know, every place pretty much in the world has their own type of folk magic, their own superstitions, their own healing remedies. And the Appalachians became such, you know, like a melting pot of so many different cultures that I know of some people who have traced back individual um, remedies and superstitions back to their initial country of origin, but all of these beliefs became ours, and they all got melted together and passed down through the years, and I think it's a really, really beautiful culture, but a lot of it had to do, you know, not at all with religion, other than you're using these other things to amplify your prayers, basically, which I kind of touch on in the book in a couple of sections. But a lot of it is just, like I said, being really, really in touch and in tune and learning through observation. Well, I was around this plant when I had this and it got better. Maybe that helps. Or, And a lot of it has to do, I think, with the fact that they didn't have, that, you know, they didn't have access to a lot of doctors. A lot of people weren't trained to do that. You had your healers. You had prayer. Those were your big big things and I don't really talk a lot about folk magic in the mountains as far as like curses or hexes but in my research and stuff it says you know most of the people here were poor if somebody wronged them they didn't they didn't have the ability to pay a lawyer or go to court or settle it through those means so if they felt like they could do something to you know make karma work a little quicker or get back their sense of pride that's what they did and I think it's really fascinating how we've taken care of ourselves for this long and I don't think it's something that should be lost when you live a life like you said so close to your environment and very isolated at the same time you create things to fill in the gaps yeah and sometimes it comes about that those things are magical mm -hmm. those things work <laughs> they do yeah whether it's because we believe that they will or not it or that they actually do I don't think it matters no if it makes you feel better if it gets somebody better I mean I don't see any harm in that right and like right. I said most of it, it didn't have to do with religion 90% of the folks you encountered were Christians and I think that's very interesting because most people do only associate magic or witches with some form of paganism. It's hard to explain. You know, almost like voodoo is deeply entwined with Catholicism. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can explain it to people, how we approach certain superstition and the way we talk about certain things. I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. Brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. 
Some new voices are joining our newscasts. I'm Becca Schimmel in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Glennis Board in Wheeling. Benny Becker in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Voices from across three states in the Ohio Valley. Aaron Payne, Athens, Ohio. I'm Nicole Irwin in Murray, Kentucky. Bringing you stories on the region's biggest issues. Covering economy and infrastructure. Energy and environment. Jobs and money in eastern Kentucky. The voices of a new regional journalism partnership called the Ohio Valley Resource. We are the Ohio Valley Resource. Several communities in the Ohio Valley region are wrestling with the contamination left by a toxic chemical called C8, or PFOA. The chemical once used in nonstick surfaces has the nasty habit of sticking around in water and has been found in a dozen water systems in Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Glennis Board visited one community where cleanup is costing millions, but some researchers say public health may still be at risk. This summer, cars lined up in Vienna, West Virginia. People were picking up jugs and cases of bottled water. Their tap water had been deemed unsafe, laced with a chemical known as C8. What do they want? Bottles. We're at back, front. There wasn't some sudden chemical spill. The chemical company DuPont polluted the water here for decades. But the federal government says C8 levels it once allowed in the water are now considered unsafe. Up until the EPA lowered the standard, it really wasn't an issue for us. Once they lowered the standard, then it became a problem. That's Vienna Mayor Randy Rapp. He's talking about a new health advisory issued by the Environmental Protection Agency this year. It said C8 levels in his and other communities drinking water are too high. This problem isn't new to the people we spoke with in line. They've heard about C8 contamination by DuPont for years. But for generations, the chemical company has been the biggest employer around Vienna. Many people, like resident Charles Swisher, are quick to defend them. It's not fair to isolate DuPont. There's a lot of people doing things back a few years ago that, that you know were unethical, unhealthy. Um, the thing that we need to do now is, is to be more solution-oriented. DuPont isn't in charge of those solutions. It created a spin-off company, Comores, which inherited this environmental legacy. In response to the EPA's C8 advisory, Comores is paying for installation, maintenance, and monitoring of giant carbon filters to clean drinking water. According to Comores public documents, cleanup has already cost millions. And the water aquifer is expected to be contaminated with C8 for hundreds of years. C8 contamination here in this region eventually led to a broad medical study of over 30,000 affected residents. The study linked C8 to many health problems from cancer to reduced immune function. Additional studies followed and further proved that chemical compounds like C8 are dangerous, even in small doses. They, they stay in the body for a very, very long time. Dr. Philippe Grandjean of Harvard School of Public Health is an expert on the health effects of perfluorinated chemicals like C8. His latest study looks at the long-term health effects of these chemicals on the immune system of exposed children. If they harm the immune system uh, today, they probably also will, you know, uh, several years down the road. And that's exactly what we found. Specifically, Grandjean found vaccines don't work as well in children exposed to C8 at levels similar to those found throughout the U.S. EPA officials say the C8 advisory levels were calculated to protect fetuses during pregnancy and breastfed infants, and based on the best available peer-reviewed studies. But Grandjean says the EPA's advisory doesn't go far enough. 
Health officials in New Jersey are now suggesting that C8 levels should be five times lower than what EPA advises. Here in Vienna, Mayor Randy Rapp just wants to get city water to the EPA's acceptable level. I just try to live by whatever the rules are, and when they tell us what our water quality has to be, that's the target that we will attain. Meanwhile, Comores today is using a chemical replacement for C8. Unfortunately, studies indicate the substitute could have some of the same ecological and health effects. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Glennis Board in Vienna, West Virginia. Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and I'm your host Kelly Haywood in the studio with author Willie Dalton, who has published her first novel, Three Witches in a Small Town, with Jane Carroll Publishing. She is from Duffield, Virginia, and grew up in Pound, so just a hop over the border. And her book is deeply rooted in this place. I don't think many of us who've lived here our whole life could write a book and it not be <laughs> deeply rooted <laughs> in this place and it work out very well. But maybe, maybe so. But regardless of that, one of the main characters in this story is the grandmother. And she's the thing that ties it together all the way through to the end. I've been here at WMMT for about a year now and I've interviewed several authors in that time and we've been talking about the underlying matriarchal culture in Appalachia that women seem to tie the families together much like you see in the urban setting, the inner city setting. I feel like it's such a, a similar thing. There's definitely an expected role for a woman but we so often step outside of that and it's expected too that we will. So let's talk about, her name is Mama Mabry. Of course, Mama. <laughs> I don't understand. My mom wanted to be called Nanny, and I'm like, what's a nanny? <laughs> so that's a babysitter. <laughs> yeah. You're a Mama. But she's Mama Mabry. I like her name. It fits her very well. So let's talk about why a grandmother and why one as feisty and strong as her. <laughs> Um, well, I, I grew up, we lived with my grandmother and my grandfather um, when I was little, and everything happened at her house. Her house is my favorite place to be, and all the women in my family are particularly feisty, so I think that definitely contributed. But I was just always hearing, you know, about my mom when I was little. I was always talking about mine, or we were at her house, or, you know, my mom was talking about her memo. It was, of course, my great-grandmother, and somehow in all of the family, she's just known now as Grandmamal. And the stories, you know, I always love, and still do, love hearing my memo tell me about growing up with her mother and all of their siblings, and it always seems like such a strong people. Every, you know, I don't think I've ever heard of someone's mamma who, you know, in their younger days wasn't just strong and couldn't take care of whatever came their way. You know, in older days, raising 10 or more kids and being the one to clean the house and take care of the children and put the food on the table. And 
but it goes so far beyond that. They're emotionally tying the family together, and I just wanted that maternal nurturing instinct in the book. Helping raise her three granddaughters, and that's where they get their sense of strength and family, and I feel like our ancestry trickles down through, through all of us, and important to tap into that. I definitely believe that if it weren't for my grandmothers, I would be kind of lost in the world right now. They're the ones who rooted me into the history of my story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you said, we're a storytelling culture, and our story is so important. And I think those links to the past and where we come from is one reason why we gravitate towards our grandparents so much is because of those rich stories. So without giving too much of the book away, because I definitely don't want to do that, the basic premise is the three sisters are coming home to Virginia to learn herbal medicine and a few other special things <laughs> <laughs> from their mamma who as so many of our grandparents do, is predicting her passing. Let's talk about the three sisters. How did you bring about their characters? Well, I knew I wanted it to be three sisters because I was kind of going off of the dream that I had. And other than that, they pretty much told me who they were. I think only other writers really get that, that we're not always creating the characters. Sometimes the characters are just waiting to tell us their story. And it was funny because you struggle with coming up with names, I think, a lot of times when you're writing. And the first two came to me really easily. So it was Agatha and Maeve were the first two that I thought of. And then the other one, um, Cerulean, which a lot of people still ask me how to pronounce her name. And it was one of those things, like, I got the name and it fit her really well, but I was like, really? Is this going to work? But the more I wrote her story, the more I saw how fitting it was for her free spirit. But yeah, I absolutely loved, loved writing the sisters. And I was a little worried they would all be too similar or too different. But I think that their personalities complement each other really, really well. They were just an absolute joy to write. Agatha is the oldest, and she's definitely the most motherly. She, you know, kind of handles things, looks after the younger ones. Maeve is the middle child, and she's kind of the wild one. And Cerulean falls somewhere in between. She's definitely a free spirit, but she's a little more grounded than Maeve. I think what holds them together is their principal beliefs and those that are embodied in Mabry. Things that are okay mm -hmm. is all the same. Things yep. that are bad is yeah. all the same. <laughs> but how they come about their individual expression is what makes them different. I don't know, I can see stories beyond this story, for sure, with these characters. And I, I wonder, are you going to continue this as a line of stories? I, my initial was that it was done. I told the story. But I have had so many people, I think I stopped counting at like 12 or 13 people, who said, please try to sequel. <laughs> so I had to think really long and hard about it if I could come up with something that I felt would do it justice. Hopefully within the next month or two, I'll be starting on a sequel. They may have many more stories to tell and their children and I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I find myself wanting to see how when they do take over their grandmother's practice, 
how easily they're woven into the town in that way because I think we're going to leave this book with them still getting their bearings a little bit. They're figuring things out, and while Mabry has been an indispensable person in the town for so long, even though some people still kind of look down their nose at her, you know, they go to her when they need her kind of thing, the girls haven't completely been accepted yet because they did move away for a while, even though they grew up there. They've moved away and they come back, so they're looked at as outsiders once again, which I think a lot of people can identify with in our area. We tend to flow like that in and out, in and out. And especially now that there's a push for young folks to go to college, a lot of us will go to college out, at least outside of our hometown. But let's talk about that a minute, the idea of moving and coming back here. I think a lot of people, because of the economy is the way it is, they find themselves having to leave. And I left the area for seven years and then came back and it really did change my perspective on the world and I'm wondering if that is one reason you took the characters away from Virginia and brought them back to build their character. I think our area of the Appalachian Mountains is so unlike any place else in the country. We're very clannish we like who we know. <laughs> it takes a while to warm up to anybody else. A lot of people are in, you know, everybody else's business. And you're pretty much always known whenever you live around here or they know your people. You're seen and judged from that. Versus when you step out, things are so different. You are your own self and you can figure out who you are, who you want to be. You can change it at will and no one seems as concerned. And so I wanted them to have that feeling of being kind of isolated, not necessarily in a bad way, but just that independence of I made it on my own. I did what I wanted to do. They wanted to party, but then it was time to come home. It was time to come back to their roots. And I think most people end up going back to their roots, especially if they feel fairly grounded and it was such an important part of their growing and their childhood. So I wanted them rooted here and then to go off, do their thing, be independent, live, get a feeling of what it was outside so that when they did come back, they were ready to come back. It wasn't an I've been here all my life and I don't know what else there is. For me, leaving gave me a deeper understanding of people in general. I feel like I am more compassionate towards many different situations and a little more open-minded about various solutions to situations than I would have been had I stayed. Just because, like you said, it is very different here and it's hard. It's really hard to explain to someone who hasn't experienced it directly for a period of time. I think you have to be here a while to really understand mm -hmm. them. <laughs> but it's different. For example, what some people outside of here would find offensive the person here who is saying that or doing that is not meaning it that way at all. No. They really just don't know. Yeah. I think having the sisters go out and bring them back and then be practitioners who are helping people is a really interesting thing to just grow their understanding of someone. 
there's a scene in the book where a woman comes, Cerulean, she reads tarot cards. And she comes to Mabry and wants her tea leaves read. And <laughs> she's dealt with her yeah. forever, you know, with no change. Mm -hmm. And Cerulean reads her cards and the woman just, it's very strange. She just kind of runs off mm -hmm. with an interesting look on her face. And I think about that, how as, I don't know, I'm almost 40. Well, I'll turn 38 this weekend. And my parents' generation, they're starting to pass things off to us. Just seeing the difference in how that was handled. Of course, she was Fred <laughs> with this character. <laughs> but how quickly she handled the situation, even though it was outside of her own experience, too. Can you speak to that? I think it would be hard for me to find a way to relate to it in daily life. I relate a lot of things through my characters. But, of course, working in customer service <laughs> and things in the past, I think we've all had someone we couldn't really get through to who was being difficult and then someone else could come along and reach them very easily without much effort or having an effect on someone so profound they don't even know how to deal with it. And then they come back later and like, hey, um, so here's why I acted that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... I think things getting handed down through the generations, I think it's important for elders to pass on their knowledge, and it's important for younger people to want to learn that knowledge because we can find better ways of doing things or we can try an older way when our way isn't working. And it's really important to be aware of, of all your options and approach everything with a good attitude so that you know how to help others and how to help yourself a lot of times. I think that's a really good illustration of it that the grandmother and her granddaughter used different tools to achieve the same goal. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that that's what it's going to look like for us because within my lifetime, I went from handwriting papers to everything being submitted via the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I think of submitting books now, I'm like, I gotta get my packet together and I'm, I'll go online. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like, send your Word document to this address. And I'm like, I want to shuffle the papers. <laughs> There's something about holding the papers. I would much prefer typewriter personally as I'm not a good, I'm not good with computers. <laughs> yeah, I'm not either. Um, always guessing when it comes to that but and then one day we'll pass it on to our daughters and they'll know exactly what to do exactly and, you know the things that we can't handle or we don't have the patience for anymore they'll take it on so let's talk a little bit about your family and you had a natural foods and natural health store mm -hmm. over in Virginia and I think, was it you and your mom who ran it? Me and my mom and my aunt. The number three, of, again, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was Generations Natural Remedies. Um, I'm sure a lot of people remember it. We really, really loved it. But yeah, my family has always been really close. And we um, have always been big believers in herbs and natural remedies and that kind of thing. And my great, great grandfather was known kind of as a town herbalist and my great-grandmother of course knew a lot of herbs and things to pick for different ailments and would send the kids out you know go pick some of this for you know your brother or sister or for me and they knew what to use and I always thought that was really 
really fascinating and something I still really need to learn. (laughs) (laughs) But I always loved the stories of how different things were and how hard they had to work to make ends meet or little things that would be so difficult today. But they were always, I can't say superstitious. I, I don't, I don't think superstitious is the right word, but everything had meaning. Like, of course, like the birds flying in the house. And I think it was a couple of years ago, I was home and I had three different incidences with birds in the house in a week. And I was freaking out. And within about a week and a half, there had been a death and an injury and then some other kind of accident. And I, but I had just been waiting. I was like, I, I know something's coming. And dreams, dreams have always been really important in my family. It was just a known thing if my grandmother dreamed about fish, somebody was going to be pregnant. Like, it was just the way it was. <laughs> but I always loved, loved, you know, being able to go to my mom or my grandmother and say, hey, I dreamed about this, what do you think it means? Or, hey, I've got a weird feeling about this, or anything like that. And none of it was ever ignored, even from the time I was little. I always felt, you know, very validated and stuff for my concerns and like I could talk to him about anything and I think that really helped my confidence and who I am and as a writer and they're still some of my favorite people to talk to. (laughs) I think of the same things being true for my family definitely and I know anytime that I dream of a passing someone's pregnant Hmm. so it's almost like someone has to go for someone else to come. It's an interesting thing, and usually I don't know the person who's passed in my dream. <laughs> I'll just be like, call my sisters, hey. <laughs> you might want to be careful. <laughs> Is everything okay today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one that I've found to be pretty accurate is anytime someone in my family, me included, dreams of a wedding, someone's either going to be very near death or pass. And that comes back to, I think, man, that's even in a book somewhere. But, you know, a death and a birth and all those things are so, or, you know, a big change, a transformation. Odd how our subconscious decides to portray them to us, but. Yeah, it's true. And you mention also in the book, The Veil, Mm -hmm. which for us here is the space between life and death. And we talk about the veil growing thin when someone is born and also when someone passes, I guess, to allow that entry and exit. And it's the same thing. It's the Mm -hmm. same veil. And I know when I had my last daughter, I experienced that really deeply, that this is the same place. And after that, as I lost a number of family members after her birth, it had somehow gotten a little easier knowing that that was the same place. Mm Mm-hmm just a transition. It is, and it's, my mom has a lot of trouble with change. She fights change really hard, and it makes any transition very difficult for her, but uh, similar to what you experienced, only you said it was after your daughter that you lost a lot of family members. The year I was pregnant with my daughter, we lost eight people in our family. Oh, wow. We were going to funerals, it seemed like, endlessly, and I do feel like the veil was very thin at that time, especially around my family, because I feel like I had a lot of guidance from ancestors and that kind of thing, you know, strength. And because it's a stressful thing to endure that much loss when you're expecting. And it was actually at one of my great aunt's funerals that I came up with my daughter's name, which was an old family name. And I don't know that I would have heard it 
again another way. I'd heard the name all my life, which is Alifair. But we were at the funeral, and we were talking, of course, you know, a lot of times you get to talking about other family members and who was related to who, and somebody mentioned a great aunt, Alifair. And they were talking about her and how she was this little tiny woman who was, you know, really strong and spunky and, like, you know, lived on top of a big mountain and carried big seed sacks all by herself up the mountain and all this stuff. And I looked at Mom and I said, I've got my name. I know exactly what her name is going to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really grateful for little things like that. And a lot of people that I know who do study, like, the folk magic more closely and energy say, you know, that the veil is pretty thin, a lot more than we realize. And that's where a lot of people get their grand ideas or inspiration, so to speak. I think a world without magic would be a little boring. I think it would be just unbearable. (laughs) I would rather explain things like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and to say, I don't know what it is. But yeah, I don't, I don't dismiss signs either. I just think they haven't figured all the, out, out all the secrets. Right. It's all secrets. It's all science, too. It is. Really. So I want to talk a little bit more about your family business, because I know a lot of people are thinking about new things. Mm-hmm. And you all tried new things. You're not open now, are you? No. But I want to ask, like, how does something like that go over in the mountains? We did surprisingly well, and had it not been for many sudden changes in our lives. Um, My mom wasn't in the best of health, and I had just had my daughter, and she had horrible colic. And then my aunt was kind of pursuing some other interests of hers. So that's when we knew, we're like, okay, this, you know, our time of running this is coming to an end. Several people acted interested in selling it but and buying it from us, but just never went through with it. But overall, we did pretty well with it, especially where we started, which was down um, on Indian Creek between Pound and Jenkins. And you know, it seems like such a really random place for a health food store. <laughs> yeah. We loved our first building, the big stone building right next to Cars R Us as you're driving through. The building itself had so much history and a lot of problems when we were there. So now we can look back on it fondly, but at the time we were like, this is, this is rough. Yeah. But we did really well, which there's still really nothing in the area quite like it. There's a few things that, you know, Walmart or Ingalls or Food City, but still whenever I visit other health food stores out of town, I'm like, did really good. We had good stuff when we had <laughs> <laughs> right. to be such a little out of the way place. We we had a really great selection, but it goes over really well, and I would say even more so now. Yeah, uh, the problem somebody might run into is price. It's going to cost more to operate a health food store and sell the same products. Most of the same products you can get from Ingles or Walmart now, since they're carrying more of the gluten free, dairy free stuff. But as far as supplements and stuff, it was really great. We had a huge selection of bulk herbs and supplements, and we did the natural health consulting and massage and all of that. So I would love if somebody else would open up one. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I would rather not shop online, but I find I have to a great deal. Yeah, well, we do too. Because, you know, we still use a lot of the same products we sold, so it's never as fun to have to find another source than just walk over a few aisles and pick up what you need. (laughs) Yeah, and talk to someone who can get familiar with you and and that sort of thing. I want to go back to talking about the publishing 
of your book. You said that your publisher is in Johnson City. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit about that process in the last bit we have? Mm -hmm. Publishing through Jane Crow Publishing, they actually own several other like Little Creek Books and Mountain Girl Press, some really small other names, but they were great to work with. Very efficient, very friendly, happy to work with me on what I wanted. They sent me the edited copy back after it went through their editor and I approved any changes, which were minimal. And then they sent me to the designer for the cover and the typeface and all of that, which was really, really fun. And I just can't brag enough on Tara who did my cover. She did just above and beyond any expectations that I could have had and that's one thing that draws people in so often when I'm selling or signing is like oh, that cover it just caught my eye like, yeah it's great and so then it went off to the print it was a really simple process now because I did win the contest it's a little different versus if they just agree to publish because they are a small press publisher so it's different versus Random House Books or something like that. But overall, they're a really fantastic company. My contract and everything was written very well. They really just want people to succeed in the area. They want to get more people from the Appalachian Mountains. They want to get their stories heard. But it was a simple process. I'm impatient, so even though it didn't take that long, I was still ready you know I was like okay I want it back tomorrow so I can approve everything yeah it took took maybe about three or four months okay to get everything done but the publishing process itself really wasn't that bad uh, one thing I didn't realize and I've talked with several other authors I said I didn't realize how much of a people person I was gonna have to become oh yeah <laughs> once because I just I write it and I give it to you and then you do whatever you're gonna do with it right <laughs> and that's really not the way it works at all. <laughs> you have to start marketing yourself, uh -huh. which for most artists is difficult because none of us think we're good enough. Right, that's um, the hard thing. We don't want to hand you a book and say, here, read this. You know, here, buy this. I think you'll like it, you know, because we're still slightly terrified. Somebody won't like it. I'm still not great with all the social media stuff as far as marketing my book. But that was one thing that, and I've talked to other people published with larger publishing companies and they're like yeah you still have to do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you have to go on the book tour and you have to take you do your book places and yeah you you have to be willing to set up the little table with all your books and wait and see if anybody's going to show up or not right um it's kind of nerve-wracking but I've learned a lot and I've met some fantastic people in the process so it's been well worth it for me mm -hmm. to come out of my box a little bit and I've definitely gained some confidence in my work. Um, either that or I don't really care anymore. I'm not sure which has <laughs> right. come of it. But Sometimes it takes just stepping into the unknown to make it just as comfortable as that. You know? Yeah. It's, it's another thing. It is what it is. Right. If any of you do pick up my book, please let me know and leave me a review, send me a message, anything I love to get feedback. We'll definitely include the link to Willie's book on our Facebook page. You can find it on Amazon. Can you buy it directly from your blog? Um, if you message me on Facebook, you can go straight to Amazon from my Facebook page, or if you want a signed copy, um, just send me a message, and I'm happy to mail those out. 
So that sounds like a good deal too. <laughs> so again, if you want to find Willie online, her blog is www.threewitchesinasmalltown.wordpress.com. And at Facebook, it's facebook.com and the backslash three witches in a small town. I want to thank you for driving all the way over. I'm happy to. <laughs> to thank you for having me. Lusburg. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun talk and I always enjoy talking about <laughs> these subjects. Definitely. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. Ever have a question that just nags at your brain? Why is there a siren that goes off in Whitesburg every day at 4.30? Is the city water in my area safe to drink straight from the tap? How do people in my town really feel about gun violence? Can I make money farming and still live in the mountains? You wish there was someone to ask, or that you'd happen upon the answer in social media or the news. Well, now you don't have to wait for serendipity. WMMT's Public Affairs Newsroom is offering a way for your questions to become the topics that we report on. It's called Central Appalachia Wonders, C-A-W. <coughs> Just go to our website at www.mmt.org C-A-W. Then submit your question, and you might well hear the answer right here on WMMT. Dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio. This is WMMT. We want to know what you're wondering, so call at us today. <coughs> WMMT.org slash C-A-W.